Welcome to the Airspace Advantage podcast. I'm your host today, Doug Berkey. Here at the Airspace Advantage, we speak with leaders in DOD, industry, and other subject matter experts to explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you're in the right place. And to our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here today, thanks so much for joining us. And as a reminder, if you like what you're hearing, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter most to you. This week, we're going to focus on Air Force fighters. We talk about it all the time. Fighter enterprises on the brink. When the Cold War ended, defense leaders cut the Air Force's fighter inventory by half. I mean, consider 1990. At the end of the Cold War, the service had about 4,500 fighters. Today, it has less than half that amount at 2,200. Now, service leaders are willing to assume that risk back in the day because they were expecting to procure a new generation of highly capable fighters in the form of the F-22 and F-35 to meet future requirements. They were balancing the capacity decline with a boost in capability. You know, you get smaller, but you get better, so it balances. And this was a longstanding plan. Leaders knew that they had to reset their fighter inventory. The core designs of the F-16, F-15, and A-10 were envisioned in the 1960s. The prototypes flew in the 1970s, and production started right after that. So it was common sense to refresh a force that had been online for decades and really was a set of aircraft that were designed from the direct lessons of Vietnam. A lot of history had transpired since then, and technology advanced tremendously. But the problem is that plan fell apart. We never bought enough F-22s, and the F-35 production hasn't hit the levels required to reset the inventory. Remember those F-15s that were pulled from Kadena last year because they were old and just worn out and they didn't have direct replacements to backfill them, so we've just been rotating forces through temporarily? That was an incredibly powerful and incredibly dangerous indicator about how bad things are these days. Nobody wanted to do that. Just turned into kind of falling off a cliff. And we actually pulled capacity from China's doorstep. Think about that. It is an incredibly bad option, but there just wasn't any other course of action, given that we have not bought a new aircraft quickly enough to provide the inventory flows. And this really speaks to an Air Force fighter enterprise that's literally collapsing. And so even though the service is planning on buying 72 fighter jets this year, and that's good, don't get me wrong, things are so bad, and we've delayed this for so long, that that number isn't enough. We need more aircraft to replace the bow wave that are going to retire in the very near future in a concurrent fashion, not do gaps like Kadena. This is a total force problem impacting active duty, reserve, and the Air National Guard. And today, we're here to talk about that latter component, the Air National Guard. Most people don't realize how integral this component is to the Air Force's ability to fight and win. And that hinges on its fighter capacity. So today, and for the future, the Air Guard's capacity is essential fulfilling combatant command, homeland defense, and a lot of other requirements. And especially these COCOM requirements, they exceed the active duties components, ability to really backfill all the demand signals. And so you have to have the air guard and the air crews to meet that everyday steady state demand. And especially in time of war, everybody goes. We're that small now that, that really there are no reserve players anymore the way we were in generations past. But we're in a situation where the Guard's fighters are often the oldest in the entire overarching Air Force inventory structure. And like I said, the backfills just aren't coming fast enough. And so this means we're going to see a lot of units facing the very same challenge that happened at Kadena. Let's be honest, COCOM demands aren't scaling down. 
the world is effectively on fire between what we see in Ukraine and the Pacific, continued threats in the Middle East, very high demand signals. That demand is very high, but our fighter demand is plummeting because of this age thing. So we got a problem. And so the challenge facing the Air National Guard recapitalization equation is really an issue right now. And that's what we're here to talk about and really explore in depth with some key leaders. So given that context, we wanted to highlight a flight line perspective to better understand what it's like to balance these dynamics at the local level and really where we might be able to implement solutions. So we're privileged to welcome Major General Paul Rogers, the Adjutant General of Michigan, and Brigadier General Tim Donut Donald, Commander of the Idaho Air National Guard and the Assistant Adjutant General for Air. And to be clear, General Rogers' background is in the Army, and General Donald is on the Air Force side as an A-10 pilot. And this is a great set of perspectives to bring to the podcast because a shortfall in fighter isn't just an Air Force problem. It creates major issues for joint force operations writ large. So, gentlemen, with that, welcome. Good morning, and thank you for giving me this opportunity to be part of this conversation and share our perspective. That's great, sir. Thank you. Good morning. Good to be here. Hey, sir. Always a pleasure. And we also have our very own Lieutenant General Dave Dapdula, Dean of the Mitchell Institute, and Heather Lucky Penny, a Mitchell Institute senior fellow with us too. Both are distinguished fighter pilots. Always good to be back, Doug. Hey, good morning, Doug. It's great to be here. Thanks, guys, for making time. General Deptula, I'd like to ask you to help set the scene for us from a problem statement vantage. I covered this at a wave top level in the opening, but you're the expert. You lived most of this history, and you've really seen it up close, which is crucial to have that perspective. So let's use what happened at Kadena last fall as an example. The F-15s got pulled. We don't have enough jets to permanently assign new replacements, so we've been rotating fighters through there on temporary assignments. Please walk us through why COCOM requirements and national security demands in general are really prioritizing fighters at such a high demand level. And I'd suggest this is a really simple supply and demand challenge, and the two aren't aligned. Your thoughts on that? Well, Doug, it's important for the audience to understand that every combatant command outside of Southern Command and Africa Command has an increasing demand for fighters. And that's because the capabilities that they bring are really important. But we've got a record low supply, the demand is high, and it's growing along with the threats that are facing us. European command requirements obviously tied to the threats posed by Russia and Putin's aggression. And then out in Indo-PACOM, fighters are absolutely vital to deter, and if necessary, to counter China and North Korea. Over in Central Command, they continue to demand fighter resources. And one that's often not thought about is Northern Command, which is an enormously important combatant command that's been neglected for far too long. There are simply not enough fighter aircraft to meet all those demands. The recent forced removal of permanently based fighters at Kadena Air Base in Japan, because of their age, limited to no supply of dwindling parts and a lesser number of pilots, a declining number of pilots necessary to sustain those aircraft represent what happens when the situation of neglect of the fighter force recapitalization reaches a breaking point? And unfortunately, it's just going to get worse if we continue the path that we're on. Now, people say, well, hey, what's the issue? Because 
Those permanently positioned jets have been replaced with the rotational presence of other fighters from other bases. But frankly, that's a short-term Band-Aid that's going to continue to wear out those jets that are temporarily stationed there, as well as their crews. And that all portends an even more dangerous capacity issue as we look ahead. So the bottom line is the Air Force requires more resources to buy more fighters and man them appropriately to meet the demands of the national defense strategy. As you alluded to earlier, this isn't just for the Air Force, but for the combatant commands. And most U.S. security decision makers are unaware of these facts. They're simply not aware of the fact that the Air Force is the smallest and the oldest force it's ever been in its history. And the reason for that is that for 31 years in a row now, to include the proposed 2024 defense budget, the Air Force has been given less money than either the Army or the Navy. Now look, I believe we need to have the strongest Army, Navy, Marine Corps, Space Force, and Air Force in the world. But no joint force operation can be conducted without some element of the Department of the Air Force. So it's time to resource it accordingly. Sir, I agree with all of those thoughts. I would just wrap it up by saying this. If you don't have an Air Force, you can't have a joint force. That's a great point. So General Rogers, General Donilon, what General Deptula just described, it's really troubling. And the reality is that Kadena is the canary in the coal mine. The shortfall is going to rapidly spread, and air guard units are squaring the crosshairs next. Now, you're both from states that are looking at some setting, their fighters with no identified backfill. So can you please talk to us about this? When did you realize there was going to be a problem? And what's the Air Force telling you about in terms of solution paths? Thank you. And I really want to thank General Deptula for his thoughts. Very informative, very thoughtful and to me, it resonates. It's spot on with the concerns that I'm seeing through my Air National Guard in Michigan. When you ask, when did we really see the problem materializing? You know, it's been over the last year or so. Now, we've understood over the last three or four years while I've been the Adjutant General that the future did not include A-10s. But what we've witnessed over the last couple of years, and particularly the last 12 months, is that window has shortened very quickly. And we're now talking about divesting in 27 and having all A-10s gone. And that is what we're seeing is that the plan for recapitalization is still in the discussion phases. It's still being formulated. And yet we have a retirement window for that aircraft and not a decision yet as to what could possibly follow on. And to the capacity, I think that has to be at the forefront of all discussions with our national defense leadership. We are seeing that increased demand from the COCOMs. We're deploying A-10s from Michigan this coming year, which tells us it's still relevant for the fight right now. And we're not arguing in the future, right? We understand everything has its day and you have to be thinking beyond the current capacity or capability to what the cap capability is necessary into the future. And that might be F-35s, it might be NGAD, it might be a continued future for F-22, although there's concerns with the cost of sustaining that platform. And an F-15EX has a clear place in the inventory and in the mission set for the Air Force. It's important we be very thoughtful and we consider the window in which we are trying to retire aircraft and make sure that we have a good plan for recapitalizing those capabilities. And 
So it's really been the last 12 months where the hair's gone up on the back of my neck that, wow, we're moving fast. And what I don't see is a hard plan yet. What I am optimistic because there are a lot of conversations going, and some of it is being driven by audiences such as this, where people who are very vested professionally, have years and decades of experience, are bringing their thoughts to the table to challenge the leadership, to include myself as to what right looks like. And I think that's a very healthy dialogue, and I applaud all of you for uh, making that opportunity happen and forcing us all to explain what we're doing and when we're doing it and how we're going to get after it in the time that we have available. I appreciate that. General Donlin? Yeah, I think those are both great questions, Doug. I actually first became aware of this when I graduated from pilot training in 1993. Most folks probably don't know this because unless you lived it, you won't remember it. But after Desert Storm, that's when the Air Force started their campaign of divesting aircraft at a rapid rate. And General Deptula mentioned that. I've been Air Force about in the Guard about 30 years. Right after Desert Storm is when they started divesting aircraft. But at that time, they realized they couldn't stop producing fighter pilots, and they had no cockpits for them to go to. So each class got one to two fighters max per base, and then they got about two to five banked fighters per base. And that program was, hey, we're divesting airplanes. We need to keep producing pilots. So for those of you who are graduating, do a non-flying job for a few years and then come back and we'll put you in a fighter. And it worked out great. I I became security police, as we called us back then, for two and a half years. But that's when the light started coming on and and I realized this is not my father's Air Force that all of a sudden the capacity problem was on day one when I got my wings. I ended up flying the A-10, going back into flying, and flew the A-10 in 1996. And then it was just off to the races for deployments to CENTCOM, to exercises all over the place. And even though my first flying assignment was in Korea, we started seeing maintenance issues there in the late mid to late 90s. When I got back to the United States at Moody Air Force Base, literally hit the ground running and the demand signal for fighters was significant. But we still had an issue with what, how many airplanes you're gonna put in the combatant commands and then how many you're gonna put back at their units so you have some kind of reconstitution. And frankly, there wasn't a whole lot of reconstitution. It was go. I remember deployment in 1998 when my squadron commander walked in and he said, hey, Donut, we're going to head back to Moody here in a few weeks. I need to start planning for this next TDY. And I said, okay, sir, it sounds great. When are we going? And he said, two weeks after we get back. (laughs) So I thought, holy buckets. Really? Okay. So the fun phone call was calling my wife and tell her I was going to be home just for two weeks before I hit the road again. But that deployment pace has been pretty consistent. And as I have stayed in the operational game almost my entire life, I've I've noticed that the demand signal for fighters in the combatant commands has not gotten less. We've continued to divest aircraft, and yet the demand signal is getting more. So I have seen this problem develop, and that's when it first started coming to light. But with the light really got bright here in the last few years, when we started talking about divesting aircraft and not replacing them with newer ones. So your second question about what's the Air Force communicating, frankly, the Air Force has an incredibly difficult problem set to solve. And I think everyone agrees with that. All my careers, I mentioned, the Air Force has been divesting aircraft, but it's been underfunded relative to other services, just like General Deptula said. So the strategy has been, hey, let's divest the old stuff. And with the money that we're going to save, let's invest in the new stuff. 
Unfortunately, that's not how the PPB process works. So the planning budget program and budget process doesn't allow you to save money like you do in your house, where you save in one area and you turn around and put it in another. Pastors is a good example. That's one of the causes why the Air Force has been grossly underfunded. If And you at Mitchell Institute have done a great job of talking about pass-through. But one year's pass-through in today's dollars of $40 billion is enough to recapitalize the entire Air National Guard into F-35s and F-15EXs. Just one year's pass-through. So the problem the Air Force is trying to solve is a budgetary one, not necessarily a planning one. And it's not about how to get the next war fought. It, it's how to get the next war fought, but how do they pay for it? And so it's underfunded, yet it's the one service that can push people, equipment, and project air power faster than any other service in the U.S. military. So it's a difficult problem to solve, and the Air Force has got to modernize. Our A-10s are 40 years old, and their F-15Cs are, some to, are older than that. So we have got to modernize our aircraft. And I think everyone agrees that's the problem that has got to be solved. So the big message for us is to work obviously with the Air Force and come up with solutions that we think that we can provide. But right now the answer is divesting to invest and we need to flip that narrative. We need to invest first, then divest our legacy aircraft. I'd like to follow up on, on Donut's comments. And again, he has decades of experience in, in fighter aircraft and in the Air Force enterprise that I don't have. But I just sit back and I try to listen to what I'm hearing from Air Force leadership. And this week was a great opportunity to reflect on what they're thinking based on their posture statement. And there's one item I'd like to highlight from the posture statement from Secretary Kendall. He mentioned the increased investment in range of conventional strike capabilities from the PRC and the potential for missile strikes of various types against the homeland is increasing. So in his budget, he used that as the backdrop for increased investment in F-15EX and F-35 fighter production. And it really foretells that we foresee the homeland being under threat if we ever went to a conflict with a peer adversary. And that in itself is justification for reinvesting and recapitalizing the Air National Guard capability across the country. And right now, we do not have a basing plan for 19 of the 25 Air National Guard fighter squadrons. So that, that should give us pause. If we don't have a basing plan for them, and we don't have hard plans for what we're going to do at these locations, that should be a primary focus for everybody to be discussing. How do we fix that? How do we get after it? And as we look at the divesting of legacy aircraft, it disproportionately affects the Air National Guard squadrons. That is our homeland defense. And that should be the front lines of the homeland. And I think that needs to be moved to the forefront in conversations and in priorities as to how are we going to invest into these facilities and into these squadrons to make sure we have that response for that conventional strike against the homeland. Now, sir, and to both of you gentlemen, really, I greatly appreciate that clarity. And you think about divest to invest. I have yet to find the old car you get rid of that somehow frees up enough cash to go to the dealer and immediately hand it over and you got a new car. It just doesn't work that way. And General Rogers, to your point about Homeland Defense, when we had Air Defense Command back in the day, when the Homeland really was under threat in the Cold War, the size of that command is pretty much equivalent to the entire U.S. fighter structure now. 
except back then you had tactical air command for power projection. You still had the guard and reserve. It was a radically bigger air force. And here we are again, it's almost back to the future. The threats are mounting so much. Things we haven't had to think about for 30, 40 years are all of a sudden on the table. We got to scale for that. Now, Heather, General Rogers just mentioned it. There are some states that have gotten a basing plan. There was recent news about Fresno and Barnes and New Orleans. Those are states with the F-15s that are literally failing and need backfill. So there's some glimmer of hope, but why isn't that enough? I think it's really great that the Air Force has come out and announced those three bases, those three International Guard units for F-15EX and for F-35. But the challenge is, if you don't know it, Fresno is already sending F-15s to the Boneyard. So they are already losing jets today. And when are those EXs going to show up on their doorstep? Not fast enough. So it's great that the Air Force is starting to recognize that they have a dire problem in terms of fighter capacity and air defense capacity and deployment capacity in the Air National Guard. But it's not going to happen fast enough. So we can't take the pressure off the demand to be able to recapitalize the entire fighter force. So it's great. We'll believe it when we see the jets on the ramp. And importantly, as everyone has said so far, it needs to be a one-for-one replacement with no gaps, right? We need to be able to ramp faster. So you have to preserve the iron on the ramp until you get the replacement because otherwise you end up losing a lot your a lot of your maintainers, you end up losing your experienced fighter pilots, which is an important piece of combat capacity. So it has to be faster, it has to be one for one in order to be able to ensure that we continue to meet the COCOM requirements. Because as General Rogers said, A-10s, they know they're gonna be losing them in 2027, but the demand for A-10s has gone up, it hasn't gone down. So you can't allow the fighter force inventory in the Air Force, the total force to shrink. No, and just to follow up on that, I think it's really important to emphasize this isn't just about units that want to have fighters because it's cool to fly fighters and it's a great job. I wish I had that every day. But uh, yeah, let me just say it is cool to fly fighters, right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no argument there. <laughs> but but really, it goes to this notion of COCOM demand, and that is ramping right now. And so. We're talking about people are like, well, how are you going to get smaller to go buy this stuff? Stop. We've already gotten too small. We need to build back up. And I don't care how capable the jet, you can't be in two places at one time. Heather, can you talk about that a little bit? This is the basic capacity part of the equation that, that Donut talked to, that General Rogers talked to about the COCOM requirements. In the 1990s, when the Air Force was literally cut in half, and oh, by the way, post 9-11, we lost even more fighters. So that just meant that the fighter deployments sped up and we burned through jets harder we burned through pilots harder and guess what i mean like after desert storm we didn't leave the middle east after 9 11 we increased our presence there and increased operational tempo there and guess what even after we left iraq and afghanistan there are still air force fighters in that theater so the demand has not gone down the cocoms need to have fighter capacity and so what ended up happening in the 1990s is the Air National Guard went from being more of a strategic reserve, you know, that depth in force in case of a major combat operation, so they would feed the fight forward as you experience losses. The Air National Guard became an operational reserve, and so they basically were the band-aid and filled in for the capacity that the active duty Air Force no longer had because you still had this incredible demand from COCOMs. And again, that's not going down. That's only going to go up. 
General Goldfein had this great story when he was the chief of staff of the Air Force where he said, hey, look, if the balloon goes up, I'm getting five phone calls from his major combatant commands. And he would talk through the capacity that each one of those COCOMs required for their operational plan. He said, guess what? I run out of forces by about phone call three. Today, that's probably phone call 1.5. And remember, as General Rogers said, and as Secretary Kendall testified to, the demand to protect the homeland is going up. We are no longer isolated by the oceans on either side of us. We have to make sure that we can secure our airspace and protect our citizens. If you look at it, we bought fighters at about 200 per year in the 80s. Those are the very tails that are wearing out now. And if we're at 72, great, it's an increase, but that's not 200. And that's a hole we're trying to dig out of. Exactly. Donut, I talked to um, General Harder out of Vermont last year and had a, talk, a chance to talk to him right when his F-35s were coming back from a very successful deployment to Europe. I said, hey, how'd it go? He said, oh, it was, it was great. Learned a lot and it was a very successful deployment. But the minute my F-35s were landing back at Vermont, my phone was ringing and it, people were asking, when can you go again? So that's pretty cool for a guard unit. As soon as they are hitting the deck back home, they're being asked, when can you deploy again? To your point, lucky about phone calls and combatant commanders needing air power, it is not going down and it's not gonna go down anytime in the future. And that was to UCOM. That's important. So, John Leptula, you know, we're talking a lot about Air Force here, but obviously the Navy and the Marine Corps, they have fighters. So why can't we look to the joint community to really fix this problem for us? Well, Doug, it's an interesting question. And for decades, there's been a misperception floating around that we have four Air Forces, one for each of the services. But there are not four Air Forces, and there never have been. Our nation has three services that possess air arms, the Army, Navy, and Marine Corps. And those air arms exist to facilitate their parent services' core functions, their mastery of operations on the ground, at sea, or in littoral environments. And it's only after all their individual service requirements are met do they offer up their service fighters to a joint force commander? Now, in this case, I mentioned the Army name of the Marine Corps. Now, the Army doesn't have fighters, but they have other aviation assets. And in the interest of time, I'm not going to go into all the doctrinal details, but the Army, Navy, and Marine Corps each claim what are known as organic or unique to their particular service component, aviation requirements that reduce the number of fighters that they contribute to joint force operations. Now, our nation has only one Air Force, and it's not just another air arm. Its reason for being is to exploit the advantages of operating in the third dimensions of air and space to directly achieve our nation's security objectives. It's this unique and specific focus that makes aerospace power one of America's asymmetric advantages. and. It's important to recognize, back to your question, all of the Air Force's fighters are made available for joint force operations. The Air Force has no decrement to providing aircraft to a joint task force due to its organic requirements. Because once again, all the combat aircraft it has are directly made available to the combatant commanders 
to the degree that we have sufficient numbers. And it's the Air Force that provides most of the nation's fighter capacity, and that's by design. So I hope that addresses your question. Sir, one of the major objections that I often hear from active duty leadership is their concern over access to Air National Guard fighters and Air National Guard assets or Guard assets writ large to be able to fill that capacity gap that we're all talking about. And I would say this first, oftentimes some of these deployments are pre-planned and budgeted for. So the problem is simply that the Air Force hasn't allocated the money to pay for those Air National Guard units to go on those deployments, right? Because the Air National Guard is cheaper when they're in garrison, when they're training, but they cost about the same as an active duty unit when they are activated and when they deploy. And so if you don't budget for it, then it's difficult to be able to access that. But secondly, the other piece of it is the bureaucracy. Like, what are the authorities? Give me a break. This is the United States military, the world's largest bureaucracy, and you're complaining about a little bit of paperwork when you need to access fighter capacity. On 9-11 and afterwards, the Air National Guard answered the call and they figured out the paperwork later. If something bad happens, the Guard will be there. Now, I want to talk about the human element of this too. We talk about the aircraft a lot. They're really identifiable, obviously very iconic, but when it comes to pilots and maintainers, that is absolutely essential. These aircraft are paperweights without those kind of trained personnel. And we've got a persistent shortfall in both. And so General Rogers, General Donilon, why is the Air Guard an important part of this human capital equation? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I love this focus because it is on the people and the people are everything. To Heather's point, could not agree more. Accessibility is two parts. One is proper planning, which is responsibility of those higher commands. And the other one is the willingness of the people to be there at a moment's notice. And I think we have to separate those two because there is zero hesitation in the men and women who serve in uniform to go wherever they're needed today. So that willingness to deploy is clearly part of accessibility and we are highly accessible and we prove that each and every day and every mission that's asked of our again men and women in uniform they are always there and, and we need to keep that at the forefront of our thoughts as we go forward the uh, prior planning that's on the people with the stars and whether or not they have had the foresight to anticipate the bands and actually lean forward and program the budget appropriately. That's more of a challenge on their shoulders. The human capital is a big deal. And again, being in this role, I've had the distinct pleasure of watching these people in action, watching them deploy, watching them come home. It's a constant cycle. And if you ask them to go today, they would be packing their bags and they'd be ready to go. Their availability is just incredible, and their willingness to serve is incredible. As we start to talk about the current state of affairs, I'm hearing different numbers anywhere between, when it comes to pilot shortage, fighter pilot shortage, I'm hearing numbers anywhere between 700 and 1,500 pilots short today. That should be the focus of a conversation. How are we backfilling that and closing that gap? But then on the other side of it, how could we be thinking about closing down squadrons or dissolving squadrons and not putting them into another fighter aircraft when we have that training and we have that experience and we have that passion to serve at our fingertips? They're already part of our formation. We just need to invest in them and give them the, the material solution to go and do their work. 
I've also been coached by my team that it takes two years to produce a fighter pilot, but really to have a proficient, experienced fighter pilot, it's probably more like four or five years. So again, that human capital, that experience, that capability that's resonant in an individual who's willing to sit on the front lines of our defense, we can't walk away from them. And you cannot build that capacity quickly. It's going to take a fixed amount of time. So leveraging them is key. And then the other number that I've been shared, that's been shared with me on the maintainer side is that we're 4,000 maintainers short for supporting our aircraft. And again, it goes back to we have to take these existing squadrons, recapitalize them, and take that experience and put it back to work for the Air Force and our national defense. So I think that needs to be a key part of our decision-making criteria. And as we look forward, the Air Force has to consider those impacts, not only near-term, but long-term, and how do we retain that talent and leverage it. I've also looked at the years of experience of an Air National Guard squadron relative to an active duty squadron, and it is a stark contrast. The years of experience, the decades of experience of those pilots, of those maintainers, is heads and shoulders above their active duty counterparts just because of their longevity. And most of them were on active duty, and when they made the transition back to the civilian world, they wanted to continue to serve their country, and the Air Guard fighter squadrons gave them that ability. Uh, We're a very important part of managing the human capital, talent retention, and making sure we have that experience available when our country needs it. That's huge. John Donnellan? Yeah, I don't think we can talk about that point ever enough. Here's some interesting numbers for you. The primary tool the Air Force uses to measure and forecast pilot retention is the pilot bonus. So that comes up quite a bit, but really what that is the take rate. And what is the take rate of the, what the, the current average take rate for the Air Force? That's what they look at and say, hey, what is our retention looking like? Fiscal year 22, the data showed that a take rate was about 35%. And that has been the case for at least the last five years. It's only 35% of the fighter pilots that come up to their commitment at the end of t- 10 years are electing to take the bonus and staying in the Air Force. So where do the other 65% go? According to the recruiting service, in 2019, it has been a trend since then, of the 65% that separate from the Air Force, 50% of those actually affiliate with a Guard unit. In 2019, Rand did a study that concluded retaining pilots is more efficient than accessing new ones. So it's obviously cheaper to keep what you got than to pay for something new, especially given that it's taken anywhere from five to $10 million to produce a combat ready fighter pilot. And that was to General Rogers point. They don't come out of pilot training ready to go. They don't come out of RTU for their aircraft ready to go. They have to have time to get seasoned. That's just the pilot numbers of the almost 40,000 airmen who separate on active duty, again, from the RAND study, 18% came into the Air National Guard. So it's an incredible talent capture capability. And I can say with confidence, the vast majority of those airmen will stay till 20 years or more. So not only are we retaining it, but we're keeping them in up until the 20 year point. So now you got all this experience that you only pay for when you use it, and that's roughly six days a month for an experienced fighter pilot, and for other highly complex career fields like pararescue, combat controller, and JTAG. But our traditional airmen, we used to call them part-timers, but that was an oxymoron because they were working two jobs and taking care of their families. But our traditional airmen don't get healthcare. 
They only get paid for healthcare when they're on a status, but when they are working their civilian jobs, even though they have to be medically ready to deploy at any time, the government's not paying for that. Their civilian companies are paying for that. So it, it's absolutely phenomenal. They don't collect retirement, the majority of us, until we hit 60 years old. So even if our younger airmen hit a 20-year point at 45 years old and they retire, they won't be able to draw retirement until they're 60 years old. And that's the life of a traditional guardsman. They sign up for it and they know it. So it's interesting that we always talk about the cost of things and the cost of an aircraft is expensive. And we said, oh, we can't afford this. Honestly, how can you not afford to put that into the lowest cost arm of your military service, which is your National Guard? So I just find it interesting. If I, it's only somebody had thought of a tricky phrase like only pay for it when you need it or something like that. That'd be a great marketing thing, wouldn't it? <laughs> But through years of, of continuous combat operations, the majority of our combat experiences in the Guard, like General Rogers said, we recently hosted Hogsmoke just last year, and it's the A-10 gun, Worldwide Gunnery Competition, which <clears throat> Idaho won, by the way. But I got a chance to talk to some active duty fighter pilots, and I was shocked to hear that just a year after leaving Afghanistan, there were only one or two combat experienced fighter pilots in their squadrons. Some of the captains I talked to were anxious to get deployed somewhere because they didn't have any deployment experience. And so that blew me away. But then you look at a guard squadron and well over 90% of the fighter pilots have combat experience. Some have hundreds of hours of combat experience. So we're retaining that experience that comes off of active duty and we're turning around and we're still maintaining it in an operational sense. It's not going into an instructor core that you can't tap into. So for all those points and the value of the guard, it's just amazing that it's just not the obvious answer to everyone. Donut, what really strikes me are the numbers that you talked about. So only 35% of active duty pilots are electing to take the bonus and stay in the active duty. And those that depart, 50% go into the guard. And you retain most of those to their full 20-year career, which means I wonder, would more than 50% go to the guard if slots were open and available for them to take? Yeah, I just wanted to say, guys, this is the irony, too, of the debate we're having. You have some folks complaining about access to the jets and the people when they're in the guard. Well, let me tell you, if they don't have jets or people and the units are effectively sunsetted, there is zero access here. So we can't have it both ways. We have to take care of these units, and we need that capacity. Yeah, 100%. You can't go to a guard unit and take the airplanes one year and say, hey, we'll give you airplanes in a couple of years. We call that gapping a fighter unit or gapping a unit. In the Air National Guard, those people have jobs. And so if you say, I'm going to take divest your aircraft now, but I'll get you new aircraft in three years, it doesn't work. Those folks will not stay in the guard because they're not flying. So that's why the mantra of 40 aircraft per year which we'll talk about here, I'm sure, in a minute, over 10 years is what recapitalizes the garbage. Got to be one for one, like Lucky said, and it's got to be 25 fighter squadrons now and 25 fighter squadrons in the future. Heather, I want to stay with this point about crews and everything. Countries have lost wars, not because they ran out of airplanes, but they've run out of trained crews and the pilots. Looking at this theme and all that, why can't we just build the extra capacity in the active duty? I get it on retention and all that, but couldn't we just grow the active duty to a point where this isn't as big of a deal? It just covers it. 
Okay, first of all, let me just say the active duty is too small. The active duty has to grow its own fighter force. But that's going to take a significant amount of time and money. So then let's establish the second point that everyone else has talked about regarding experience and combat experience. Experience for aircrew, fighter pilots, their maintainers, all of that matters, right? Which is why the retention matters. We know from historical case studies that experience is directly correlated to combat effects. So you take a look at the Luftwaffe, you take a look at, the, at Japan during World War II. The reason why we were able to establish air superiority and then create joint force dominance in both of those theaters is because those forces ran out of experienced pilots and experienced maintainers. The Luftwaffe, for example, they were producing more fighters at the end of World War II than they were at the beginning of World War II. But they were putting up young kids that had no combat experience, and so they were just, their attrition rates were so bad that they were unable to sustain a fielded force. So that's why that matters. So I get it on the retention piece, growing the active duty. Again, like I said, it's too small. But we should, why don't we just build, we need to build into the force that we have in the Air National Guard, because that experience matters. I think a key part of it, too, is as I look at this, if you were going to do that kind of transition, that is a decade plus sort of transition. And the world that currently exists with Russia and Ukraine, China aggressive in the Pacific, Iran still in the Middle East and all that, we don't have time to say, let's sunset this model and then build to this other one. That, that takes years. And I don't think any of our adversaries are going to let us hit the pause button. No, you're absolutely right, Doug. What General Rogers said about it taking four years to five years to build a fighter pilot, that's your basic combat useful wingman. That's not your flight lead. That's not your mission commander. It takes even longer to be able to do that. Again, why retaining this combat experience really matters, and these guys are basically in the guard. The other reason why is that five-year timeline, that is your strategic surprise time horizon. For example, anything happens inside those five years, even if we had a perfect crystal ball and we could say something bad's going to happen in three years, we're already two years too late to turn to that. So, John Deptula, how do we fix it? Yeah, that's the uh, $800 billion plus question. But the bottom line is, I'll just tell you, be direct up front, the Department of Defense needs to resource the Air Force to align it with the mission demand that's placed on it. And what that means relative to our conversation is it requires the Air Force to buy more fighters and buy them faster than they're doing today. Doug, you mentioned earlier that during the 1980s, we were buying around 200 fighters per year, and we did that for multiple years. And the first budget in many years, the 2024 budget proposal includes buying 72 fighters a year. That's great but that simply keeps the average age stable. It's not nearly sufficient to recapitalize what's become a geriatric air force to the degree that it's required by the combatant command warfighting requirements. So 72 fighters a year is a positive step, but it's still too small. We're in the crunch zone for replacing those big Reagan era buys. So we either get closer to those levels or our entire warfighting enterprise will implode. I hate to be the, hey, sky is falling kind of guy, but those are the facts. I appreciate that. So General Rogers, General Donilon, you and a lot of the other Guard leaders came to a pretty similar conclusion. Can you walk us through your plan? 
Yeah, I, we have. And there's a couple different paths that can be followed to get to the end state we're describing. But there has to be willingness of all parties to be part of that solution and get together in a meaningful way and lay out the right path. And, and that's step one. Because if we have that shared goal with senior leadership, then there are a couple different options available to us. Where I have optimism is that my governor has been meeting with Secretary Kendall and talking with other Air Force leadership. The delegation from Michigan has been meeting with Secretary Kendall and Air Force leadership. And these have been very positive and constructive dialogues. And I think there's a passion there to get to the right solution. Um, but the reality of the budget, the reality of the resources, is something that these leaders have to grapple with. And that's why I think the right path forward is really one of a shared responsibility. It includes our legislators and their willingness to appropriate the resources to get the solution that the Air Force needs. But then it also takes the courage on the Air Force side to actually be honest and forthright with what that solution is and the true time frame in which to get it there. And I think sometimes the budget numbers that General Deptula referred to, they tend to they cause us to be a little more cautious and to not look too expensive in the end. Key leaders in the past have said, if you think fighting a war is expensive, losing a war is even much more expensive. And we have a lot at stake right now. We have to resource the capacity. We have to resource it in a very fixed amount of time, given the threats around the world and the global pressures we're after. And I think as we talk capacity, we tend to talk iron on the ramp. We tend to talk the qualified fighters, maintainers. But there's another capacity that I think our senior leadership both elected and appointed need to grapple with, and that's our industrial capacity. And when you start to look at ramping up the production of fighter aircraft, the second conversation is the lack of ability in our industrial supply chain to respond quickly. I think if we want to really show our opponents that we are committed to deterrence, we should also show that we have the capacity to produce fighters at quantity to recapitalize our Air National Guard in a short window of time and that we are willing to invest in that capacity, the long lead items, the supply chain, and the production capability. And I think there's an opportunity right now today in recapitalizing all 25 fighter squadrons in the Air National Guard to build that capacity. And it will be resonant for the next five to six to seven years and I think that will be a signal of deterrence for people overseas. That's huge. John Donnellan? It's, it's like any problem, uh, the first step is identifying it. And we talked about that over the whole podcast. But this is an enterprise-wide problem, as we discussed. It's not just a guard issue. It's not an active duty issue. It is active duty guard and reserve. General Brown our chief staff of the Air Force told Breaking Defense last April, he said, ideally, I'd like to get to higher fighter procurement rates. If I had a big blank check, I'd actually take care of it all. That's a pretty hefty quote coming from the chief staff of the Air Force. And I think we all were at AFA last year when General Kelly, commander of ACC, had said in order to accomplish its missions both abroad and overseas, Air Force is required to have at least 60 fighter squadrons of multi-role aircraft, such as the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter or the F-16 Falcon. And right now we're at 55 and talking about going lower if we don't recap. 
So everyone agrees. And so the problem says, what is the answer? What is the way to go forward? Well, actually, the C-130 community showed us that last year and through the appropriations of both the House and the Senate actually appropriated C-130Js on top, above the Air Force's budget in requests to replace older C-130H models. And we need to have that same philosophy and provide that same problem set to Congress to invest the same way in fighters that we have done on C-130s. And once we get to that point, then as General Rogers has said, we need max industries production rates. And as soon as the production lines can produce aircraft, we need to field them. So the National Defense Strategy already outlined China as a pacing threat. And that's the level of capability we need to be at right now. So how fast can we get there and what risk are we going to take? We think that there is the we're going to take risk. Let's not take risk on that capacity and capability issue. Let's take risk on some of the infrastructure that we have. Typically, when a unit is going to get announced that they're going to recapitalize into another fighter, a bunch of milcon will flow and they'll start upgrading facilities that are pretty good right now, but they're not quite at where they want it for the F-35. That's where we think we can take risk. And we've coined that phrase is rapid recapitalization. And the plan is minimize the amount of upgrades that a facility or a base needs and get the airplanes fielded to those units and get them flying and get them turning so that they're ready to go. So that's the first thing to do. But going back to the appropriations, the plan that we're advocating for and that we think is it will work is ask Congress to appropriate 40 fighters per year just for the Air National Guard and do that over a 10-year period. So that's the 40 for 10 that I mentioned earlier. That also is tied to not reducing the fighter floor that we have now. We can't afford to reduce any more fighters than we have in our inventory, and we need to keep the floor where it's at. Then again, that's active duty, guard, and reserve. So that's 25 fighter squadrons for 25. So that's the second mantra that we think needs to be in any kind of NDA language or even bills in the future. And then finally, one for one. So we talked about earlier, we don't gap fighter squadrons because that's not going to work either on active duty or the guard. And so it's a one for one. One older airplane flies away and a new airplane flies in. So 40 for 10 is what the purchase needs to be, either F-35 or F-15EXs for 40 aircraft for 10 years, 25 for 25, 25 fighter squadrons now, 25 in the future, and then a one-for-one one swap. But that risk piece that I talked about, if we're willing to take some risk in, in CONUS infrastructure, then we can get these aircraft fielded as fast as they come off the line. And a good example of that is that almost all Air National Guard bases are at civil fields. And that means that it's a joint use field where the civilians, the cities, are maintaining the airfield. For example, at Gowan Field, and again, like many guard bases, we don't man the tower, the FA does, and the FA pays for the control tower. We don't do runway repair. We don't even we don't even plow the runways, the city does. We don't maintain the nav age or the lighting. So all of that is already done, and it's already being used by us and most heavily by civilian traffic. So where does the risk come in? The risk comes in, hey, I'm going to use this hangar that I've used for the last 40 years. I need to do some work on it to get up to speed, but I don't need a brand new hangar. I don't need a brand new op building. I can remodel that. I can put in the security requirements needed for an F-35 or an F-15EX. If we start thinking that way, then we can reduce the cost of fielding these aircraft, get the newer aircraft to the most experienced units 
in the guard and then get moving out. Is I love that phrase that General Rogers mentioned, and it's worth repeating again, that General Milley said it. He said, the only thing more expensive than deterrence is war. And the only thing more expensive than war is losing a war. And so this is an enterprise-wide problem, but it is an enterprise-wide solution. We need to continue to field 40 for 10, 25 for 25, and one for one. And if we're willing to take a little bit of risk on infrastructure in the United States, then we can make it happen. And the Guard can make that go forward. Uh, sir, that's a great point. And if you think about kind of the 72 core request, you had the 40 on top of it, you're getting a lot closer to that 200 number that we talked about from the 80s. And, and I think that's just reality of where we're at. You know, on your C-130 point too, you talked about it this past year, but it's also the 90s. The Guard is the one that kept that aircraft alive. And they're the ones that actually came up with the J model and allowed that to be produced. And we would not have been able to fight and continue operations in Iraq and Afghanistan and have a viable C-130 fleet today if it wasn't for that J model. And that gets to the problem of where we are with the budgeting process where, look, the Air Force has issued a top line. They have to work within that. It is not necessarily tied to pragmatic demands that are around the world. And when we look a little bit beyond that time horizon and we look at what are really big picture in our request, that's where that C-130 example is so powerful. And so now I'm really glad you highlighted that. We're running short on time here, but General Rogers, you wear the Army uniform. And again, I think it is just so important to emphasize this fighter situation isn't just about the Air Force. The Joint Force doesn't work without these aircraft. And can you just give us some pragmatic experience from your career on that? Absolutely. And here's the direction I'd like to go with, with this final opportunity. The thought I want to give to everybody, quiet compliance is never the right answer. When we disagree with our senior leaders, I think we have a moral obligation to step up, share our opposition, share our voices in a positive, constructive way, and then commit to being part of the solution to find the right answer. And I think that's what this podcast is all about. It's recognizing that there are different points of view, there's different priorities, but we all share our national defense goals and objectives, and we're all willing to serve at a moment's notice and be on the front lines. And the Air National Guard is no different than that. They are ready to serve today. They are highly accessible. And all they ask for is the recapitalization, the investment back into them as a squadron, as a wing, so that they can be at the forefront of our national security going forward. I think that's the, the key from that standpoint. I gave Donut an opportunity to highlight his state, so I'm going to take an opportunity to highlight Michigan and be a little parochial here. But when we talk about homeland defense, geography matters. And the global geography actually puts the heartland at the center of our national defense. And when you look at some of the vulnerabilities to our national infrastructure, that, that position that Michigan is in gives it a unique perspective in the defense of the homeland. So when I look at the capability of a long-range, over-the-horizon sensing capability with a response such as an F-15EX or an F-35, I think that is the right solution for national defense. I think it's the right solution for the Air Force, and I think there's a conversation about that proximity and geography that has to be included as we talk about what the future looks like. But I want to finalize my comments by really focusing back on the people. Right now, today, we have a fighter squadron in Michigan that's ready to deploy at a moment's notice. They are identified to deploy later in this year to support a COCOM. They deserve the right equipment, the best equipment, and they deserve to be reinvented 
reinvested uh, in, recapitalize into another tail, into another fighter aircraft so they can continue to serve their country and their state going into the future. But thank you for this opportunity to be part of this dialogue. And as the Army guy here, I'm honored to be here. I'm probably not worthy, but I truly appreciate the opportunity to share this perspective. No, thank you. And I really appreciate everybody's time in this. And really, if we need a final foot stop, just look at Ukraine. That's what happens when you don't have air superiority. That's what happens when you don't have the other capabilities that fighters bring to the equation. And that is so catastrophic, we can't even begin to think about that for our country. So again, gentlemen, thank you so much for doing this. And Heather, kudos to the Air Force for getting the fighter by to 72. But like everybody described, it's going to take more than that. And so the Air Guard is going to be huge for filling that gap. But again, really appreciate your thoughts today. Thanks, Doug. Thanks for the opportunity to get out there. We'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you, everyone. Great discussion. And I really appreciate your perspectives. Thank you, everyone. Good to be back. And with that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. And if you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas that you think we should explore further. And as always, you can join the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.